Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. It is my privilege this morning to introduce you to a dear friend, um, to a colleague, and to actually someone in leadership here at Redeeming Hope, although you might not have ever seen him. His name is Preston Sharp. Now, um, for, for those of you who don't know, uh, Redeeming Hope, we are a part of a network of church plants called Converge, okay? They've been planting churches for 150 years, and um, no healthy pastor is independent. Every pastor should be under the authority of someone else. And even in any sort of kind of leadership role, there should always be someone who has an authority, um, someone that's like an upline that, that holds me accountable to what goes on. And so as a lead pastor of Redeeming Hope, I have something called a triad, and it's put in place by our church planting network. And so they have said that we want two godly men to partner with me as the third person, and then the three of us actually come to an agreement and make major decisions for our church and where our church is going. And so before Rachel and I even moved up to Clarksville, Preston was, he's on this triad team, he was praying for you, he was praying for our church and speaking in. And every quarter, I meet with these men. I give them a report on the church, I bring pastoral issues to them, um, and they speak into it. I actually talk to them about my walk with Christ and my relationship with Rachel. And they hold me accountable, they pray for me, they partner with our church. And so Preston has actually been investing in you, even though you've never probably met him or knew about him until today. And so I'm so encouraged to give him an opportunity to speak for the first time here at Redeeming Hope as he encourages us today. Well, good morning, Redeeming Hope. It is such a joy to be with you today. It's an exciting time that exciting time for me to have the opportunity to be with you all this morning. My name is Preston Sharp. I'm the pastor of Sacrament Church in Nashville. I am also on the triad for Redeeming Hope. So I get to be kind of involved in Redeeming Hope, even though you've never met me before. <laughs> but I get to talk to Josh a lot, which is such a privilege and you all are just really blessed to have such a pastor as Josh. Uh, he is a blessing to so many, as you know. I have just been so proud to watch him step out and start this venture, start this church plant and follow God's calling. It's been a joy to see his heart for people who don't know Jesus, his desire to gather a community of people to participate in the Jesus story, to know him well, to be formed as disciples of Jesus. It is a beautiful thing to watch. I love his passion. Josh is just so passionate, and I love that he stepped out to start Redeeming Hope, and I love that you all have come along with him. It's a beautiful and wonderful thing. And today we're going to talk about a church plant in the first century, and there's just so much that goes along with church planting. You all are in such an interesting season. Anytime we start a new church plant, it's challenging. It's difficult. It's become more difficult as our world has changed. Um, there are fewer and fewer people who are really jumping into church in the United States. And so that becomes a challenge. And then we had this like worldwide pandemic this year. 
(laughs) And so that makes everything really challenging and really hard. And yet, as you know, God meets us in the midst of the hard, in the midst of the challenging. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about how God meets us and how God forms us. But I just want to say today, we're proud of you. I stand with Sacrament Church, but also with uh, other pastors who have come alongside of Redeeming Hope. And we just say we're proud of what you do and who you are and who God is forming in your midst. And keep going, keep serving, keep giving, keep participating, keep yielding to what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. It's a beautiful and wonderful thing. I love hearing the stories of God's faithfulness to you. And I'm just glad I get to be with you here today. Uh, I want to talk to you today a little bit about who we believe that we are. I believe that everything that we do comes out of who we believe that we are. If we believe that we're scum, (laughs) we're going to act as if we're scum. If we believe that the only good that, the only thing good that can come out of us is if we produce well, or what we can achieve, or what we can produce, then that's going to change who we are. If we believe that we're only good based on what other people think of us, or how the world sees us, then that's going to form whatever we do. We're going to just try to please people. That's going to become who we are. But the way that we spend our lives, the way we spend our money, the way that we approach our relationships, that comes from somewhere deep inside who we believe that we are. Today, I want to read from the book of Ephesians chapter one. I want to start today with just the first few verses of this. From Ephesians 1, starting with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one whom he loves. If you'll indulge me for just a minute, we're gonna look at the culture and the history of this place that Paul is writing to, this little church plant in this city called Ephesus. So if we explore the culture of Ephesus, Ephesus was the fourth most populous city in the entire Roman Empire, which was most of the civilized world at that time. So Ephesus was the fourth largest. So you had Rome, Alexandria, Antioch, and then Ephesus. And Ephesus dominated all the trade route along the Aegean coastline. And its harbor, had a big harbor there, and its harbor hosted ships from throughout the Mediterranean. It was connected by roads to manufacturing and the agricultural centers in the east. So you could basically get anything in Ephesus. It was this cosmopolitan urban center. If you think about the major cities in our world today that are also seaports, kind of gives you a little idea of Ephesus. So New York, Seattle, San Francisco, Hong Kong, right? These like major port cities where you have access to so much of the rest of the world from that city. In Ephesus, there was a 25,000 seat theater, a triple arched gateway and expansive retail space. There was an open air courtyard with a wide covered walkway all around the perimeter. And there were approximately a hundred shops along the square. That was huge for the ancient world. 
You could buy the latest clothing fashions from Rome, Egyptian jewelry, purple cloth from Thyatria, or exotic spices from the East. I wonder if you've ever been to Chicago. I think about the, when I hear this, I think about the Magnificent Mile in Chicago, right? Really similar kind of vibe here, except like ancient world similar. And in the midst of this rich culture and vibrant economy, Paul made his second missionary journey. Now, this church that was here in Ephesus, there was this ragtag church here in Ephesus, right? Christian church. And they had been planted by a guy named Apollos. But they actually, the scripture says that they received the Holy Spirit when Paul visited them, okay? So Apollos planted this thing and then Paul came along and God began to work in the midst of them. A few years later, Paul wrote to this church, most likely from a prison in Rome, and he was further cultivating their growing faith. And this is called the letter to the Ephesians. That's the book in the Bible that we have here. So Paul starts out this letter by celebrating their story and not just the story of Ephesus and not even just the story of this church plant, even though that was huge and it was amazing what God had done in them, but the great story that they're part of and the great story that we're part of, this big story of the story of God's people and God's faithfulness and the gospel, this grand story, every conversion, every baptism, every hill, every valley, every prayer, every act of discipleship in every time and every place is part of of that story, right? So we are connected with Christians all throughout the world today and all throughout the ages, and we're bound together by this story. And it's the story, Paul says, of the triune God. Many scholars believe that this is a specific reference to the Trinity. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given us every spiritual blessing or blessing of the Spirit, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The first part of Paul's prayer emphasizes here We've been called by God. He chose us. And get this, it wasn't because of anything special that we did. <laughs> he simply chose us out of his grace. In fact, if you read this passage again, every verb, the subject of every verb is God. God is the one who does the action. The purpose of God's calling, when God calls us, is not just so we can like feel good or we can be in the God club. No, the purpose is so we can invite others. We can bless the world. We can spread the love of grace and grace of God in a broken world. This was actually the calling of God's people from the very beginning. So if you look at the Old Testament and you look at the calling of Abraham, when God first called the people, the people of Israel were blessed and called so that they might bless and call the world. And we now, the church, are invited into that process of blessing and inviting and calling. It says, he chose us in him or in Christ before the foundations of the world. This means that he sees us and Jesus together. God does. Wow. Because of what has been done in Jesus, we are sons and daughters of God. In other words, as Paul says, we have been adopted into the family of God. The verbs here, chose, destined, and predestined are all here. And they're really similar words, but they're also kind of different. They have different nuances. So God chose us. What's this mean? Well, it means that he noticed us. He identified and he chose us. Secondly, that choosing 
does something inside of us. So we're destined for something. It changes us. It changes our destination. It changes where we're pointed to. That choosing has now become a vocation, right? The word destined derives from the noun for boundary. So God has marked out space for you. You are called, not just generally, you're called into a specific kind of life. It's not just that you're chosen so you can feel good about that, even though it is an incredibly good feeling to be a follower of Jesus, wouldn't you say? You are destined to live a life in Christ. You're destined for something specific. Today, if you fly out from the airport in Greece, the same word that's used here for destined, the word prorismos, will show up on your gate at the airport, okay? So it'll say like, Parismos, like destination Nashville or wherever. I don't think there's any direct flights from Greece to Nashville. I may be wrong, but, but we recognize our destination, where we're pointed, where we're headed is to be children of God, okay? Later in the letter, Paul does address some like serious issues, behavioral issues that are going on in the community. They're lying, theft, bitterness, rage, slander, malice, sexual impurity, greed, intoxication. They got a few things going on right? But notice this, Paul doesn't start by addressing the behavioral issues. He doesn't start his letter by saying, hey, y'all, I'm writing to you because I got to call you out on some stuff. No, he starts by focusing first on their identity as followers of Jesus, on who they're called to be. He can't address, before we talk about behavior at all, we need to talk about who you are. We need to talk about belonging. We need to talk about your identity. The first image that Paul uses to capture their identity is adoption. Now, if you'll travel back with me to the first century Ephesus, picture yourself in this place. Maybe you're taking in a play at this 25,000 seat theater. The stage is actually like a building itself. It's huge. It's three stories tall. It has this ornamental facade. And the play that we're seeing today is Oedipus Rex. It's based on a well-known Greek legend. King Laius and Queen Jocasta of Thebes receive a disturbing message from an oracle that their newborn baby boy is gonna cause the family great harm. Okay, so this prophet, this oracle, pagan oracle says this, that this um, baby boy is gonna cause the family harm. So in response to this, Laius, what it does is pins the infant's feet and tells his wife to kill the child. Queen Jocasta says, I'm going to give this task servant. So she tells one of her servants to do that. But instead, the servant doesn't kill the child. The servant abandons the child in the fields, which exposes the child to the elements. This was seen in the ancient world as a way of just handing the child over to the gods. We don't know what's going to happen to the child. We'll just hand the child over to the gods. Well, a shepherd finds the child and names him Oedipus, which means swollen feet because the child's feet were pinned, right? And the child is eventually raised by Polybus, the king of Corinth. Well, this story would be really well known by theater goers in Ephesus. And although this element of the story seems strange to us, like why would we leave a child out in the elements? Of course, it's horrible. That's awful. That wouldn't have been strange to the Ephesians. It was a normal practice and it was called exposure In the Roman culture, a newborn, when a child was born, the child was placed at the father's feet. The Roman family at this time was the building block of Roman society, and the father of the household was the head of the home, so kind of the final decision maker. 
Just as the emperor ruled over Rome, so the father ruled over the family, is what was said. So the father had a choice. When a child was born, the father, if the father wanted to keep the child, he would pick up the child, claiming it as a desired child. But the father could also, for any reason, disown the child. He could just turn his back and simply walk away. In fact, that's exactly what he did. If he saw the newborn and he was displeased, he turned his back and he walked away, indicating that that child was not to be his child. Many times the reason for this, that father would turn his back on the child, was because the child was a girl. The father wanted a boy. Or the other way around. Or perhaps there was a blemish or a birthmark that the father didn't like. The child then would be placed outside, exposed to the summer heat, the winter rains, or to die of dehydration or hypothermia. At night in Ephesus, if you were walking in these shops, this town square towards the theater, or you passed by the garbage dump, you could hear the cry of babies who'd been left. Now, there were some in this world and in this city who would rescue the babies, training them up so that they might serve as a slave or a prostitute. In fact, a few days later, the Ephesus doctor, Seranus, authored a book titled How to Recognize the Newborn That is Worth Rearing. The main thrust of the book, if you were to rescue this child that you found on a garbage dump, would raising the child give you a good return on your investment? So what would happen is many slaves or prostitutes would grow up They would walk the streets of Ephesus, and as they see people, they would wonder, could that be my father? Is that my mother? It is certain that among the early Christians, among this early church plant in Ephesus, there were slaves who had been dumped as children, placed on the garbage heap, abandoned in the cold. It is in this culture, in this church, that Paul reminds the church they have been adopted. They have been chosen. The creator of the universe has chosen them, not because they're like somehow the best of the best and they're somehow wonderful, but simply because he loves them and he wants to use them. The creator God loves them. And Paul is specific that this creator God, not just some divine view of what is sacred, but the specific God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's the one who has adopted you. Jesus is at the center. So the old song is not too far off. Jesus loves me, this I know. For Paul's letter to the Ephesians tells me so. (laughs) Little ones to him belong, for they are weak, but he, he is strong. Even in that weak state of desperation, being left in the elements, he is the God who picks us up. It is by his strength. If you were in the early church and you carry that kind of baggage in your life, how do you think this would hit you? Paul is saying your identity is no longer formed by the father who turned his back on you, but on the God who took you in. Your defining reality, and we can hear this today, your defining reality is not in the rejection that you've experienced, no matter how painful that rejection is. It's not in how you've been treated. Your defining reality is not the boyfriend or girlfriend who broke things off, the husband or wife who left. It's not in the company that fired you. It's not in the parent who left you. 
Your identity is in the God who picked you up and brought you home. Notice the difference between how the pagan gods are seen to operate and how the God who is the father of Jesus operates. The gods of the Roman world were fickle. They operated based on whims. So they, sometimes they wanted to interact with people. If people were nice enough or good enough or whatever, the gods would step in. Sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they were wrathful and capricious and all of these kind of things. The father in the Roman culture was kind of like that. He was supposed to be kind of like that. He was the basis of Roman society. Whatever the father whimmed is what would happen. Whether or not a child was cared for was based on the whims of the father. Then, as the child was placed in the elements, the Romans did not believe that they were killing the child. They just believed they were handing the child over to the gods. If this is how the gods work, it would be reasonable to assume that these children didn't deserve to live because most of them, other than those who were rescued because they were seen as physically able to survive, most of them died, right? Yet, this God who's the father of Jesus Christ is different. He's the one who truly rescues, the one who chooses. And this is why, church, it is so important that we recognize that our adoption as sons and daughters of God is not based on anything that we've done, any way that we've like kind of formed in a certain way or acted in a certain way. It is because, it is not because of our stature or our ability to have a return on our investment. It's because, it's not because we lack defect or birthmark. No, it's because God simply chose us out of his unconditional love. He calls us in our weakness and in our vulnerable state. He sees all that we are and he called us worthy of adoption and that's all we need. This image of adoption is significant to me because uh, my girl Lucy is adopted. She's seven years old now. And we have been so incredibly blessed with Lucy, the blessing of our lives. <laughs> I, can't even believe, I can't even begin to express it with words. And Lucy's story, even though we've, you know, as we've walked it out over these past seven years, it, it feels to me like something holy or sacred or sacramental. Now, I don't mean by this that it's floaty or metaphysical. It's very real, okay? We, uh, you know, we had to change all the poopy diapers when she was little. We had to deal with tantrums and disobedience and all the stuff of growing up and everything. It's all very real. But the way that her story has worked out almost feels like it's too good to believe. C.S. Lewis has this image of heaven that Heaven will not be this place where everything feels like it's not real, okay? But actually, in heaven, everything feels like it's more real. So C.S. Lewis says that the grass will be so real, it'll almost hurt your feet to walk on it, right? So with Lucy, we have what's called an open adoption. And what that means is Lucy's birth mother will always be part of our lives, and her family is always part of our lives. So our family just grew in a bunch of different ways when we adopted Lucy. We were in the delivery room when Lucy was born. And honestly, I, I approached adoption. I was kind of afraid. I, I was nervous that, 
I wouldn't be able to maybe bond with or attach with an adopted child in the same way that I would a biological child. All that's silly and selfish now, and it's all big feelings, and I know that, but that's how I legitimately felt at the time. I was nervous about that. Am I going to be able to bond with an adopted child in the same way? Could I choose? And, but I knew that even if my feelings were not there, I reminded myself, I can choose to love this child. Now, again, that sounds selfish, but that's kind of where I was in the moment. But I felt myself beginning to attach to Lucy even before she was born. We saw her little face on a 3D sonogram and my heart just melted. <laughs> Lucy's birth mom said that whenever I entered a room and started talking, Lucy would calm down. <laughs> um, my grandmother wrote me a letter to remind me, this was, of course, she calmed down while she was in the womb, right? Uh, my grandmother wrote me a letter to remind me of Joseph who is Jesus's adopted father. Talk about <laughs> a dad who didn't know what was coming. <laughs> Joseph is an interesting example because in Matthew's gospel, Matthew tells the genealogy of Jesus, like his, his ancestry and his history uh, from, uh, uh, from the very beginning, but he traces it through Joseph, okay? That doesn't seem to make sense because Joseph's not the biological father. Why would you trace Jesus's ancestry through Joseph if he's not the biological father? Well, when Jesus stepped into our world, he didn't just take on our human experience. He took on Joseph's lineage, right? When Lucy was born, it was love at first sight. And I can't explain it, but there was absolutely no doubt that she was my baby. Now, I have to say that this isn't everybody's experience with adoption. And I know that please don't fret whether you have a biological child or an adopted child. If you have struggles with attachment or feel struggles to attachment, that can be totally normal. But this was my experience and everyone is different. But from the time Lucy was born, it was interesting. So I felt that, that moment, you know, with the, the sonogram and then even, you know, all before she was born and then in the delivery room and, you know, when I got to hold her for the first time. But it actually took us 17 months before Lucy's adoption was finalized. It just took that long. It's just the way the courts worked and everything. And that's way later than most adoptions are. But it was just, it was through no cho choice of our own. We had to go through three different attorneys. We had complicating factors. But finally, after 17 months, the judge declared her to be Lucy Rachel Sharp. As much as I felt this powerful connection to Lucy, that I felt no doubt that she was ours, the world still seemed full of things that seemed to challenge Lucy as our child. This entire time we had to carry around, these whole 17 months, we had to carry around guardianship papers declaring that we were temporary guardians of Lucy. Now we knew that we were way more than temporary guardians of Lucy, but we had to take these papers to the doctor and say, yeah, we're her temporary guardians. We had to submit them with our taxes. It was just kind of weird to kind of carry these papers around everywhere. Lucy didn't have a social security number for the longest time. <laughs> these are formal things, but there's also other things that happened too that seem to kind of challenge that or seem to kind of push against the idea that Lucy was our child. So anytime someone says, she looks just like you, we're reminded that our relationship is different, right? When people say silly things like, were well, you ever going to have any children of your own? I go, what? She's a child of our own, right? We feel this sense in those moments that people don't see adoption as quite as legitimate as biological parenting. 
Yet we know our adoption is real. We know that Lucy is really ours. We chose her. Her birth mother chose us. We are not temporary guardians. We were not temporary guardians. We really were and really are her parents. And she truly is our little girl. Now, we're never going to run from our story. We don't sit back and pretend that adoption is a secret little part of her past. No, we celebrate it. We tell her her story. It's a beautiful thing. Why do I tell this? Well, the world is full of so many things that will challenge your identity as an adoptive son or daughter of God. I wish it wasn't that way. I wish we lived in a world where we were all just loved and accepted each other. We all knew that we were children of God. I wish, I wish we could all see the inherent value like Jesus does with each of us. I remember um, some months ago that I walked in a Dollar General store and the cashier and the lady who was checking out got into an argument with each other and they began to hurl insults back and forth at each other. Well, I mean, you don't really have a real job. Well, what are you supposed to be doing? You're supposed to be working. Today. You're just being lazy again. Or, oh, why are you buying that? And we're going back and forth and back. And the whole time I was just grieving and struggling with the fact that both of these people are hurting so bad and they're lashing out because they don't know their identity. They don't know who God has called them to be. Many people will treat you in the world like your value is based on what you can produce or what you can produce for them, what you can give them, or even how you look. Some will use your past against you. Others will take something you said recently and devalue you. Magazines and television will tell you you're not thin enough, good-looking enough, or rich enough. But there is a different reality. Listen to a portion of another letter of Paul's, the letter to the Galatians. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Our goal as the church is to remind you of, our, of your identity in Christ to remind you that you have been adopted, not because of something that you did, but because of God's love for you. We gather together week after week and we remind each other of our place in God's story. We are reminded of our adoption and you've been chosen and you've been destined as part of a family. And it's no longer, it's not just an individual thing. It is, but you're also now part of the family of God, a family of God's adopted children. We believe that our adoption in Christ has to be the starting place. Before we talk about behavior or life in God, we will not live rightly in the world without be, being rooted in our identity. This week, I want you to know that God has chosen you. No matter what anything else in the world says. 
you know, after those 17 months, we waited a little bit longer. <laughs> but finally, we got a package in the mail, a package of documents from our adoption attorney. And the last page of that package of documents was a formal declaration of all our rights and privileges as parents and all of Lucy's rights and privileges as our child. I want to invite you for just a minute to, um, this may be a little strange for you, but why don't you take a minute and just close your eyes. I've changed this a bit to reflect our relationship with Christ, but I want to read that last section of that last page to you. And I want us to hear this as a proclamation of our identity as adoptive children of God. It is therefore ordered, adjudged, and decreed by the court that the child, put your name here, is hereby declared to be the lawfully adoptive child of the petitioner, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that the exclusive care Custody, nurture, education, and control of the child is vested exclusively in the petitioners. And henceforth, the relationship of parent and child and all these rights, duties, privileges, and other consequences of the natural relationship of parent and child shall exist between petitioner and said child. And that everything else that would claim to form the identity of said child are relieved and deprived of any and all rights to or over said child or her property, care, custody, or control. It is further ordered a judge and decreed by the court that the name of the child shall be changed to child of God. It is so ordered. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you're the one who rescued us out of the heap. <laughs> We're thankful that that's in your nature. You are the rescuing, redeeming, healing, and restoring God. Lord, we're thankful that you chose us before the foundations of the world. Lord, we're thankful that you've changed our vocation and our destination. You've pointed us in a different way. And Lord, thank you that we're part of a family. This isn't just a self-help program that we're part of. This is a family you've invited us into. Lord, I pray for each of these that are part of Redeeming Hope, that are participating today, and others who may be joining us as well. As they face, even this week, even this afternoon, things that would seek to challenge that identity. That would say, no, you know what? You're really valuable based on how much money you make or what kind of job you have or whether this person likes you or not. Lord, I pray that you would remind them over and over again, you're a child of God. You've been adopted. You've been chosen. Lord, help us as we live in a world full of so many people that don't know their identity to be a reminding people, a proclaiming people, gospel proclaimers, the good news that, yeah, you too have been rescued. We trust in you today and you alone. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. So great to be with you all day. Hope you have a lovely rest of your day. Peace be with you. Preston, thank you so much for sharing that wonderful message with us. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.